0: 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, Peter says the day of the Lord will come. It'll be a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. It'll be a ball of fire. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, since all these things will happen, Peter said, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct And godliness. In other words, in the idea that this is happening, how does it affect you? How does it affect me? Looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look to a new heavens. And I read about that in Revelation 21 last week, and a new earth. And here's the key proponent Finally, it'll be a place where righteousness dwells. Oh my gosh, are we looking for that place? Now, I feel like a movie studio when they make sequels, right? Part one, part two, now you got like part seven, all these ridiculous sequels. Well, when they make a sequel, they have to make it stand alone because they don't know who saw part one, part two. So I don't know how many of you here were part one, part two. So I'm going to give you a simple outline today. You can go back and listen to the message on the web or we have CDs out there. We're talking about the day of the Lord. Three questions. What is it? When is it? And why does it matter? The day of the Lord. What is it? When is it? Why does it matter? Now, what is the day of the Lord? We spent a lot of time on this the last two weeks. Real quick summary. It is the most documented time in Scripture. When I say Scripture, I'm talking about the older covenant, 39 books of the Old Testament, and the New Testament that we so love and is dear to us. This is not a mystery. This is not hidden under a rock. This is not esoteric. All the prophets wrote about that, the minor prophets, the uh, major prophets. Jesus talked about it. He said, if those days weren't shortened, no flesh would survive. Peter wrote about it. Paul wrote about it. And certainly John in the book of Revelation. It is not one day. Now, Jesus Christ returning is one day. And that is certainly the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is of every long period of time. It begins with the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, goes through a seven-year period of tribulation, Revelation 6 through 13, leads to the Battle of Armageddon. For those of you who have been to Israel, we have looked at the Jezreel Valley from that Tel of Megiddo, and you can see it. Napoleon said it was the most natural battlefield he had ever seen. There will be one final battle there. Jesus will return. And then a lot of Christians forget about this. Revelation says there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. It's called the millennium. The word millennium is not in Scripture. It's Latin. It means a thousand years. Jesus Christ will reign a thousand years. Why? To show us what God's plan, had the fall never happened, would have looked like. And there's wonderful prophecies in Isaiah where every man will sit under his vine and fig tree and children will play in the streets. There'll be no fear and and all the former things that cause so much heartache like war and, and, and the things that man has brought upon the earth will no longer be and righteousness will rule in that day and holiness will cover the earth like the waters of the sea. That's why we cry, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Peter, who's writing this letter to us here, Uh, gave us more insight into the day of the Lord. Remember the day of Pentecost when 120 were in the upper room? The Spirit of God comes, births the church, and they're speaking in tongues. Well, they go out of that room and they begin to speak, and everybody can hear in their native language, and people are confused, right? There's this paranormal activity, and their conclusion is these people must be drunk. And Peter says, well, nobody's drunk, it's 9 in the morning, and I love this. He can point to it in Scripture, and the Scripture they knew was the Old Testament. He said, this is Acts 2, this is what Joel said. So come to pass, key phrase, in the last days, which started on this day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Here's what will happen. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men will dream dreams, and on my maidservants and men servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. The gifts of the spirit, the numata or charismata, would be a part of the church from this day forward. Now, when would that end? Would it cease when the last apostle died? Like John on his cane in Revelation, speaking in tongues, and when he dies, that's it? Nobody prophesies, you know, etc., cetera, et cetera? No, he goes on to tell us from Joel. He said, these things will happen and then God says, I'll show wonders in heaven above, signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be dark and the moon and the blood before the coming and the great awesome day of the Lord. And now you know what that day is. That day is this day we've been studying for three weeks. What was Peter saying? Peter was saying normative affair in the church would be the gifts of the Spirit would be moving because the Holy Spirit would be active. Now, no one argues that the gifts of the Spirit weren't working in the early church. Cessationists just believe they end it with the last apostle or when the word of God came to us. Peter says, no, this is going to be normative activity until the day of the Lord. What marks that? Moon turning to blood, sun going out, vapor and fire of smoke. In no way did he say those things would be normative. Does everybody understand that? He's telling us the church age begins at Pentecost, and it will go to the day of the Lord. So save your money buying books about blood moons and UFOs and all that stuff. It's all bunk. It's not scriptural, okay? So Peter, with the greatest insight from Joel, says this is the day of the Lord. Now Jesus gave us insider information, right? He gave us this wonderful information about his second coming which he gave to believers, right? These were pearls. The problem is we've taken these pearls and we've put them before swine. We've, we've pinned the tail on the Antichrist. We've, we've put billboards up about when Jesus is returning. We've argued with people. That's not what it was for. In John 14, the night he was betrayed, Jesus said, look, let your heart not be troubled. Here's your cure for anxiety. You believe in God, you believe in me behold, I go to prepare a place for you. He told the guys he was leaving. He said, but if I go away, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I'm preparing a place for you, listen, listen to the words, I will come again. That was the promise that where I am, you may always be with me. This is the blessed hope of the church. This is the cry of every dating couple, the wedding day, The wedding day is a glorious day where you look at your bride and you say these vows and you go off into the honeymoon. This is why the church said, Maranatha, come and work quickly. We're looking through a glass dimly. We're reading Bibles and one day we're going to look at the word of God like John saw him in all his radiance, like he saw him in the Mount of Transfiguration. That's what Peter said will stir you up and get your heart moving. This is the blessed hope of the church. Jesus promised this to us. Now this gets overlooked, but Jesus promised it at another time, the night of his arrest, he's taken before the high priest, Caiaphas, who by the way is not a spiritual man. He's a corrupt man, this was a political office by this time. He's taken in front of Caiaphas, all the elders are there, or the Sanhedrin are there, all the movers and shakers of Israel. Peter's outside, denying Jesus, the rooster's crowing. The night of his betrayal, Jesus... Caiaphas says to him, you said you'd destroy this temple in three days and build it. And, you know, are these accusations true? Jesus doesn't answer. He's fulfilling Isaiah 53 that as a lamb before his shearers, he is silent. In other words, he was willingly going to the cross. And then Caiaphas says, I adjure you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, are you the son of God? And because it was under oath, Jesus answered and said, it is as you say. Don't let anyone tell you Jesus never said he was God. He said it's exactly the way you said it. But then he said this, nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand and power and coming on the clouds of heaven. They're going to crucify him the next day. All oh, the power of Rome is going to crucify him. And he said, one day you're going to see me coming from the right hand of God, Psalm 110, and you're going to see me coming on clouds. And if you want to know what God Jesus crucified, it was this. Because he made himself one with God and he made himself the Messiah. But to you and me, he gave us these pearls, I am coming again. In Revelation, he told John, I'm coming quickly. Pastor Bob, it's been 2,000 years. Yeah, Peter told us about that. Watch your timing. We live in time, God lives outside of time. A day is a thousand years, a thousand years one day. God's not slack. God has a watch, he knows what he's doing. He doesn't want anyone to perish. So the church age is rolling on and God knows exactly where we are. So what is the day of the Lord? Is the day of God's unmitigated wrath that will enter into a golden age in the way God always intended the world to look. Now, here's what everybody wants to know. When is it, okay? Well, Jesus said, you'll never know the day or the hour. He did give us conditions, Matthew 24. Revelation, we get conditions. Daniel, we get conditions. We've talked a lot about that. Um, But I want to give you one of my all-time favorite quotes by Isaac Newton. Everyone in this room will admit Newton was a brilliant man. And by the way, for all your atheist friends... And I go out on all these sites, like Noah's Ark, how they get all the animals on there, how did animals repopulate the earth, you know. They pick on these little stories, uh, but they forget there's 320 fulfilled prophecies. They don't want to go there, of course, right? So Isaac Newton, right, he's in their camp. Science, listen to what Newton said. He said about the time of the end, now this is the last of the last days, a body of men will be raised up who will turn their attention to the prophecies, what we're studying, and they will insist on the literal interpretation in the, much, in the midst of much clamor and opposition. Now Newton said this in the 1600s. He said in the end of days, a body of men will be raised up and they will teach the scriptures. Share with this with you the first couple of weeks, there have been more books, teachings, sermons, podcasts concerning the end times in the last 50 years than the first 1,500 years of the church. The last 50 years, we have more teaching on the end times than the entire history of the church. So Newton was right. Newton also had a profound insight to argue for the literal interpretation. Why? Because he knew that's what the early church believed, the writers of scripture and The early church fathers, they interpreted these things and lived their lives as though these things were literal and were about to happen. Now, let's take a little sidebar for a minute. This will help you in your Bible study. Um, When people read the Bible, they say, well, how do I interpret the Bible? The Bible is not hard to interpret. It's like any other literature. Uh, Many people take credit for this quote. I'll give you the guy who really said the quote, Dr. David L. Cooper, He's a Hebrew scholar, a missionary to Israel. He said the golden rule of biblical interpretation. Everybody in Seminary 101 gets this unless it's a liberal seminary. When the plain sense of scripture makes common sense, ready for this? Seek no other sense. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and it was day one. Seek no other sense. That's the way we read everything else. When, it's, when it makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word as its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts tell you otherwise. Make sure you study it in, the, in light of related passage and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicate that something else is being said. Okay? So we use the historical, grammatical, literal interpretation of Scripture unless we know it's going somewhere else. I'll give you a great example. What was Jesus' predominant method of teaching? Parables, right? The word para means to come alongside, like parallel parking. Bola is truth. So Jesus, if you wanted to understand the gospel and how the seed of the gospel goes in our hearts, he talked about farming, right? A sower sows the word because they were agrarian. Uh, today, I use sports analogies, right? Because people watch sports 24-7. But those are all parables. But we know he's teaching a parable. The Bible uses similes, right? You know, uh, I saw, you know, Isaiah saw, I saw him high and lifted up. Uh, it was like this or like that or nations, etc. Those are similes. Uh, there are metaphors. Sometimes there's allegory in scripture. When you read apocalyptic books like Daniel and Revelation, you'll see beasts, dragons, flying scrolls, horses with men's faces, locusts, and you think, oh my gosh, is this Harry Potter or is it the Bible, right? And what you have to understand is these people were seeing stuff and they had a grasp for all that they knew to describe it to you and me. So if you were alive in John's day, right, like 60 AD, and you saw an Apache helicopter, how would you describe it? I think he did pretty good, like a locust with a man's face. That's pretty darn good if you ask me. So you have to understand how Bible interpretation Works. And then Newton said he was arguing that one day we would look at these prophecies literal. Why? Because in his days, it had moved to allegory. After the church fathers, men came along and they said, no, here, here's how the deal works. The promises to Israel no longer exist. They've all moved to the church. Jesus' second coming, yeah, he's coming again, but not literally. He's coming through the church. And this idea of a thousand-year reign of Christ, we're actually living in it. We're actually living in the reign of Christ. He's reigning through us. And they allegorized it. Augustine kind of theologized it. And this is where the church in the Middle Ages somewhat lived. But Newton knew better. He looked forward to our day. He looked forward to a literal interpretation. And Newton couldn't see, only probably in his mind eyes, one of the things that we could see it was at least 300 years away, and that was the nation of Israel in the land. Now, this is all through the first five books of Moses. I'm going to give you, just from Deuteronomy, verses I stitched together. You can go look them up if you want. Uh, it's mainly Deuteronomy 28 and 30, but I put them together so they read and give you the full comprehension. This is God speaking to the nation. They're not even in the land yet. He said, You will be uprooted from the land you're about to possess. The Lord will scatter you among the nations, from one end of earth to the other, and among those nations you will find no repose, no resting place for the sole of your foot. You will live in suspense. You will be filled with dread both day and night, never sure of your life. When all these blessings and cursings that I've set before you come upon you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, then the Lord God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate you and persecute you. And then the rest of the verses say, and he who scattered Israel will bring them back. Now, this wasn't God's intent, this was God's foreknowledge. The wandering Jew has been one of the most aptly titled or coined phrases I've ever heard. From 70 AD, when the Romans came to destroy Jerusalem, Jews were sent all throughout Europe. The Middle East, later America. Most people don't realize some of the most uh, largest Jewish neighborhoods were actually in the Middle East. Baghdad, wasn't Iraq at the time, had a very large Jewish population. So did Lebanon, so did Saudi Arabia. It wasn't Saudi Arabia at the time. They were all throughout Europe. We know much of that history. When the Jews were sent throughout the world, two things happened. One, they thrived. When they went to Babylon the first time under Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel's time, it was only 70 years and Zerubbabel comes back and rebuilds the temple. Do you know most Jews stayed in Babylon? Do you know why? They loved it there. You know, here they were farmers and they learned finance and banking and they saw the hanging gardens of Babylon and, you know, it was a pagan place, but they built synagogues and they said, you know, we'd like to have a piece of this. And that was the history of the Jews. They thrived wherever they were. So we were in Israel about three weeks, four weeks ago. And unlike my early years where I kind of zoom back here and resume what I do, I spent a few days in Europe now to decompress. I usually go to London. This time I went to Paris. Well, the interesting thing about Paris is my Jewish guy, Daniel, his family is French. They're from Paris. And they fled to Israel. Uh, right before the Holocaust. And I got to tell you, I got to Paris, and after a day of touring, I emailed Daniel and said, why did you guys ever leave Paris? I don't even want to leave Paris, okay? Uh, Why would you leave London? Why would you leave Germany? Why would you leave Rome? Why would you leave New York City to go to a place in 1890 that Mark Twain said lacked two things, a man and a tree? Why would you go back to a pile of rubble that no one cared about? For 1948 years, it was not a geopolitical capital. There was no flag. Nobody wanted any parts of that land. The Jewish people thrived. They were, they were clockmakers and butchers, and they collected fine art, and they became engineers. They built a whole Russian infrastructure. And yet, what the God say in Deuteronomy? I will scatter them and I will bring them back. The mystery of anti-Semitism cannot be explained without saying it's supernatural. Why would you persecute 1% of 1% of the people who have won 22% of Nobel Peace Prizes? What about these people outwardly? Why would you persecute them? Some people say they were Christ killers, right? I can't believe that's the sole reason. And that can't be the sole reason, because look at their holidays. Their first holiday, their greatest one, is Passover. What's that about? 400 years slavery in Egypt? No Christ killing there. Purim celebrates the genocide that almost happened under the Persians. That's the book of Esther. Um, Hanukkah is about the Greeks. Remember, they desecrated the temple. And then Rome crushed them in 70 A.D. Had it not been for a series of events with the Holocaust capping it off, Jews would have never gone back to the land of Israel. It is one of the greatest miracles of all time how God has called these people back, almost like he called the animals onto the ark. And you and I have lived through it, where we're pretty close to having seen it, we can look back, it's not far off. God's bringing them to the land is one of the supernatural indicators Newton talked about that we would see in our day to know we might be closer than you think. Now, a lot of you will hear about Zionism, okay? And you'll be confused, so let me explain it to you. Zionism is a political movement that started in the late 1800s by Theodore Herzl. Uh, if you ever see that picture of Ben-Gurion uh, 70 years ago, right in this month, May, I think it's like May 9th or 18th or so, um, declares the nation of Israel, the picture behind him, if you Google this on images, that's Theodore Herzl. Herzl starts the Zionist movement. It's a political movement for the establishment of a Jewish state, which, by the way, they were almost willing to accept places in Africa, if you can believe that. They were just looking for a homeland where they wouldn't be persecuted. Uh, This movement takes steam. David Ben-Gurion kind of rises up. There's the Balfour Declaration in England where Britain now, who has control of that part of the Middle East, gets behind them. The League of Nations gets on board. There's, there's a Zionist conference every year, but it was really the Holocaust that pushed this forward. And in 1948, David Ben-Gurion stands up and says, the land um, that now has been created shall be called Israel. And it was a modern day miracle. No nation who had ever gone out of existence had come back speaking their own language with their same flag and national identity. The earth had never seen it before. The next day, they were attacked by five standing Arab armies, population 18 to one. They had tanks. They had air equipment. They had armies. Israel was flying. Listen to this. Piper Cubs, tail cocktails. If you want to read a fascinating book, I think we sold out in the first service. Larry Collins, a secular writer for the New York Times, has written a book called *O Jerusalem. He explains some of the quote-unquote miracles that had to take place behind the scenes. I'll give you one to whet your appetite. So right after World War II, uh, Israel sends spies to New York City. A group of engineers rent a Manhattan apartment and they kind of steal blueprints from General Motors on how to build tanks. They then go and buy scrap metal all around the world ship it back to Israel for hardware stores because it was illegal to ship arms across the seas. The people on the other side open up all this equipment, take the blueprints and rebuild tanks that they used in 1948. And that's one of a hundred God stories and things that happened that allowed David to defeat Goliath a second time. Again, a modern day miracle. What brought Israel back to the land? Certainly Zionism was a part of it, but God was using it. And God brought back a million Russian Jews. He brought back people like Golda Meir. I just finished her biography. This woman living in Michigan comes back to the land because she could taste it. Shamir and Perez and all these warriors come back because they sense there's something going on they can't explain. And there's a subset of evangelical Christians, very few, that are praying for the peace of Jerusalem and want to see this happen. Why am I telling you all this? Because Jesus in Matthew 24 said this. When you see the fig tree blossom, that's a metaphor. The fig tree all through scripture is Israel. You know summer is near. Common sense. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the very doors. Jesus said, when you see Israel back in the land, when you see all these things, when you see birth pangs, you are standing at the door. And guys, we are. No people ever sitting in church pews have ever sat here with Israel in the land. With the modern technology we have. With some of the things we're seeing going on in the world with population, things I've talked about in the last couple weeks. And then Jesus said this, heaven and earth will pass away. My word will never pass away. Schofield believed that. When he wrote his study Bible in the 1800s, he said Israel had to be back in the land. Almost every other scholar said no, God did away with Israel because you couldn't comprehend it. They couldn't comprehend you would go there in 2018 and see what we saw. It was impossible, so they came up with replacement theology. Schofield said no, what God says he means and what he means he says, and I'll stand on it. Today, not only is Israel in the land, they are a start-up nation. They have some of the most prominent stocks on the stock exchange. They have a booming uh, uh, technological sector. The eyes of the world are on Jerusalem, especially with us putting the embassy there. And we are seeing fascinating signs. Why is this important? Two reasons. One, Peter told us. Second reason is this look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, Paul wrote a third of the New Testament, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in those things which are hard to understand. Peter's like, Look, I'm a fisherman, I'm a generalist. I can tell you about Joel, and I, I think I have a handle on the scripture. Paul's a brother from another mother. This, guy, this guy's got brain power, all right? And if you read Romans, you'll agree, right? You know one of the most complicated things Paul wrote about, and, and we could discuss it for a month of Sundays, Romans 9 to 11. In Romans 9 to 11, he said, look, God called the nation of Israel. They, they were the natural tree, and they had been set aside that we might be grafted in the church but don't get prideful of that because God could cut us out. Paul also goes to say, for the sake of brevity, that there's coming a time where all Israel will be saved. That's weird terminology for the New Testament or anybody that believes God's done with Israel. What Paul was saying is, God still has a plan for these people. That's why we see them arising in the last days. Read Revelation. We're given 12 tribes from the Old Testament. God knows where they are. I read a fascinating book on the way home from Israel. I picked it up over there, how they're doing studies in genetics. They can still figure out who is a descendant of Aaron, the Kohatites, uh, by genes. They can still tell. It's fascinating. Of course, God already knew. He'll, he'll, He'll get them where they need to go. Revelation says there's going to be every tribe, every kindred, every tongue. That includes Jews. Zechariah said when they see him, they'll be seeing him for the first time and they will weep and mourn for him as one mourns for her firstborn son. Why does the day of the Lord matter? It matters because for you and me who have given our lives to Christ, we say God, I believe you're the Christ. And I'm gonna set aside my one and only life and I'm gonna follow you. I'm gonna trust you with my life. I'm gonna trust you with my salvation. I'm gonna trust you with my kids. I mean, there's a lot of promises we're standing on, right? My life verse is Joshua 1.8. This book, a law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, you'll have great success. I mean, my whole life, the foundation is God's word. But you know what God's saying? God's almost saying to us, you don't need to stand on that alone because I've already given you a picture of what my relationship looks like. God said, I married Israel. I called them. I married them. I wanted to bless Israel. I gave them everything that was necessary. They were disobedient, so I scattered them. But guess what? Then I offered them grace and I regathered them. And even though they're sticking their hand in my face, I've blessed that nation. And here's what God's saying. If I did it for them, I'll do it for you. If I was faithful to them, I'll be faithful to you. Even when it doesn't look that way. Even when things are dried up and parched. And every skeptic's telling you like the mockers here in Peter. That God is not active in your life. God said, I mean what I say, and I say what I mean. And you can take it to the bank that I'll do all these things for you. I love what Peter says here, that because all these things will happen, that you can be found in him in peace. Philippians says there is a peace, my translation, that makes no sense. There's a peace that passes even rational understanding. In other words, I'm at peace with my mortality. This can be my last day on earth, and that's okay. I'm at peace with my position in the world, with my lot. You know, when Israel came into the land, the land was doled out by lots. Some got ocean front, some got Jordan front, some were put in parched hills. But that was their lot in life. We've all been given a lot in life, we've all been given a field, and that's okay. Because God says if you work that field and you reap the fruit of that field, you'll receive a reward for that. There's a peace about that. You know, I don't need to get the latest book on what's the hot place to live. I don't mean hot by weather, like, like Portland, Oregon, or Pittsburgh. Like, There's always the greatest place to live. And I always say, no, it's not the greatest place to live because you're gonna take yourself there. Yeah. <laughs> All right? And that will make it not the greatest place. All your problems will follow you. For a thousand years, God can give me lakefront property it's okay. Now, if you have lakefront property, that's wonderful, but is there peace? I have peace about where the world's going. To be honest, I don't sit up all night watching CNN and Fox News and figuring out what Trump's doing and, you know, the rocket man in North Korea. I I don't care about all that. I mean, I follow it and I look at it. I follow it only because I'm looking at it through a biblical worldview and lens. I'm not worried about it. I have tremendous peace. Peace about my family. I have peace about life. I have peace about what I understand about life. I have tremendous peace. I don't have all the answers, but I have peace. I'm not searching for something new. I'm not looking for the secret. I've already found the secret. God loves me. He loves you. Has a wonderful plan for our lives. That's the secret, right? Peace. See, the second coming isn't we run around and tell people Jesus is coming with a sandwich board and we argue our position, he's coming pre-trip, post-trip. That's not what it is. The peace I have is tomorrow I mulch my flower beds, I pick my kids up from school, all with one eye on eternity saying, God, what would you have me do right now? Because I know one day you're coming and this ball of fire is gonna melt everything. Real quickly, I wanna end with this. I told you that the day of the Lord starts with the rapture. I can't leave this teaching without telling you about the rapture. Um, There are people that will tell you, don't believe in the rapture, don't believe what your pastor teaches. It's a doctrine that was invented in 1830 by a man named Darby. No, that's not true. So does anybody here believe Martin Luther invented salvation by grace? Anybody? Would anybody say he brought it back to the forefront? Yeah, 2 Peter's all about false teaching. Paul at Ephesus said he was in tears with the Ephesian elders there saying said grievous wolves will come in. and They're going to twist scripture, etc., cetera, et cetera, Luther comes back and says, no, we're saved by grace, not by works. It's right in the Bible. He brings it back. Well, Darby did the same thing when he started talking about the rapture, how it was a tale of two comings. Christ comes for his church and at the end with his church. Paul wrote about it. Peter wrote about it. Um, John wrote about it. Lutheran historian J.L. Nevy tells us it was the predominant view of the apostles and the early church fathers. He said the time of the fathers was thoroughly eschatological in tendencies, the first 300 years, as was that of primitive Christianity. Men had the conscious awareness they were living in the last times. The immediate return of Jesus was anticipated. It was the expectation that held, listen to this, held congregations together. Men considered it their imperative task to keep an eye on the approaching end and to work for their moral betterment so as not to be surprised by its appearance. In looking for the consummation, men learned to observe the signs of the times and to watch for definitive indications that would precede Christ's coming. The precursors were taken to uh, to form the prophetic scenario so that seducers and the increase of wickedness and persecutions, antichrist, etc., would be opposed. This is one of the great historians saying, no, the early church believed in imminency. Christ could return at any time. I believe the rapture is important because we need a cataclysmic event to jumpstart the day of the Lord. I don't know how you're going to get a one world leader, a one world monetary system, a rise of a man of peace, an antichrist, and a building of a third temple without some worldwide cataclysmic event. For 1,300 years on the temple mount has been a golden dome. It's a mosque. I believe God allowed it to be there. Had it not been there, the Jews would have built a temple. God put it or allowed it to be there until the time the Gentiles were fulfilled. Somebody's going to figure out that conundrum. And just like Mark Twain couldn't understand, neither could Isaac Newton, because it looked like a non-reality, it looks that way for you and me. But God said, don't doubt me, I'll do exactly what I've said. Guys, we live... In contradictory times, we live in unprecedented prosperity. Dinesh D'Souza wrote about this 20 years ago, the the rise of an escalating class, an overclass. So America gave us a middle class, right? That's the dream of the rest of the world, and we've kind of carried the world into that dream. We're in an overclass now. You know, what we used to think was upper middle class, now that's middle class. Yes, there's poverty in America, but not on the scale of the rest of the world. But generally, the world's moving to an overclass. The days of Noah, prosperity. Then, on the other side, we have abject poverty, dictatorship, extreme poverty, and um, sex trafficking, etc. We live in very contradictory times. We live in times where Jesus said when he returned, would he find faith on the earth? would he find the faith that you and I adhere to? Very contradictory times. We live in times where everybody's got an argument and no one wants to dialogue. Because if I dialogue and tell you my side of the story, I'm offending you. Those are the days we live in, right? Truth is seemingly out the window. And yet Jesus said, this will give you peace. I... I'm as fired up as I was on a college campus in 1983. And I have never wavered one ounce. In fact, my faith only builds, especially when I go into the land where God said all these things will happen. So guys, if this is your home church, you know we're gonna do this when we hit it. We're not gonna talk about it every week, but when we get there, we're gonna talk about it. And Peter said it should stir you up. So stir you up to me as take another step, buy a commentary. Read 2 Peter. Read Revelation. We'll be there in September. Read the book of Daniel. Let God stir your heart for these things.